Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 68, A Conversation with Karen Sullivan. Karen was initially diagnosed with an early stage breast cancer that later metastasized, and she is now living and thriving with metastatic breast cancer. Karen founded Pretty Wellness, which is a healthy lifestyle media and content creation company to inspire people to take small steps toward better health and happiness. She's also the author of the book, Happiness Through Hardship, and the host of the podcast, Happiness Through Hardship, which provides inspirational stories of hope intended to bring happiness to your day while guiding you through life's hardships. On this episode, we talked about her diagnosis, her treatment, and her journey along the way, and what that has meant for her and for her family. Karen is vibrant, she's radiant, she's full of energy. And one of the things that I really think you'll gain from our conversation is the ability to take a step back and and to find joy in the little things, even when we're going through something really, really hard. And with that, it is my honor to welcome Karen Sullivan to the Interlude Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude Podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. I'm so excited to be here with Karen Sullivan, who's joining me to share her story. Welcome, Karen. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's go ahead and just kind of introduce yourself to the listeners. Tell us who you are, what you do, all of that. All right. So my name is Karen Sullivan. I am an author. I wrote the book Happiness Through Hardship, which is also a podcast. So I, too, love this medium, and I share stories about finding um, joy during whatever journey you're on in life. And about that life, I am a two-time breast cancer survivor, um, thriving with stage four disease. And I'm at about my eight-year mark with it. And so I'm definitely someone who's, you know, like many of us, rode the roller coaster of life. And I'd like to believe that I have um, figured out, though it's a work in progress, on how to tap into finding joy that works for me and connecting with being healthy even though I'm somebody who lives with cancer. I, I'm really looking forward to talking more about that. But let's back up a little bit. Were you diagnosed with stage four in, as your kind of first diagnosis, or did you have an earlier stage cancer? So I did. I, when I was 31 years old, I felt a lump. Actually, my husband felt a lump. And you know, we laugh now about it because he's like, Karen, you should go get one of those mammogram things. That was how little we really knew about cancer, breast cancer, but we knew a lump was bad. So we ended up going and, you know, looked into it. And I went to the various doctors and I had the various scans and found out at 31, three months after my wedding, that we were, that I had stage 2A breast cancer. And for, you know, for those listening, you really know a little bit about breast cancer. It was hormone positive. It was ERPR positive, HER2 new negative. We decided that I would get a bilateral mastectomy uh, because I was young and, and I did 16 weeks of chemo. So that was eight rounds. Half of it was adromycin and cytoxin. The other half was taxol. And I believed, you know, you spent maybe six, eight months going through the crazy diagnosis, the chemo, the surgery. Now, granted, the surgeries ended up taking a few years, but the the pain and anguish of having the drains to uh, being incredibly fatigued from all the treatments. You know, eight, nine, 10 months later, I felt a little bit, you know, while I was bald, I didn't necessarily look the same. Uh, I felt like I was jumping back into my own, my old life. It was then nine years later that I that was diagnosed with stage four. One, can you tell us how that 
diagnosis was found of the stage four? And then also kind of what was going through your mind as that's happening? So, and this is the point where I will tell you, I went a little rogue, Uh, but the reason was because it was my 40th birthday and all my friends were going on these big vacations. I guess I have some, you know, cool friends, right. And having big parties for their 40th birthday. And I had left my corporate job to go to grad school. And so as my husband and I thought about, I love to celebrate, I will celebrate anything and everything. And so I just felt like, "Eh, you know, we can't go on this expensive vacation because we're paying out right now. We're paying for grad school. So when I had a friend go to one of those executive doctor's appointments where you, the Princeton Longevity Center is on the East Coast. Uh, she went there. It was an all-day doctor's appointment. And I thought to myself, like, yes, I'm screened, but I could go see a nutritionist. I could see like a cardiologist. It was all under one roof in one day. And I've always cared, as I said then, about health and fitness. You know, now I'm more about the overall wellness. And that's why I started my company, Pretty Wellness. But then it was really more about, I want the, the, the what's the dietitian going to tell me or what's, and putting it all together for me. So when I say I went rogue, it wasn't necessarily a part of my screening. I did go to the approved screenings nine years after. And so when I share this with the group, I don't believe that you have to do it my way. I did it for a different reason. I do believe that within time, my hospital would have seen things that would have changed that would have picked up on the cancer. But literally the way I found out was because I went in there and they told me I had the body of a 29 year old. And I'm like, woohoo, like I'm 40, even though, by the way, it wasn't like me in a bikini. It was me and my heart was strong, but I had a suspicious lesion on my sternum. And so then in there, I started like crying, called my doctors. They got me in for the appropriate scans. And that's when we found out the suspicious lesion. Actually, we did a fine needle biopsy once they saw it on the the PET scan. And we found out that it was my same cancer from before or similar, right? And that then because it left the place of origin, it was stage four. And on that note, when I was diagnosed or when they told me the cancer returned, in my mind, I didn't know it was stage four. And I thought I was really smart about cancer because I had had it nine years earlier and I was a great patient and I'm always kind of a a student of life. So I read a lot about a number of things that related to my health. It wasn't until three weeks later when I went to see my second opinion where he asked me what was going on and when he actually coined it stage four. Now I give my original doctors some credit knowing me because you hear stage four and you think, oh my goodness, you're going to die and you're going to die soon. And I'm here to share with so many people like, yes, it can be dire. And I am telling you, it's been a roller coaster. There are times that it is tough. However, I also want to say like, I, I am the person of hope to share that I know other people and I am one of them that has been living eight years with stage four disease and I live an amazing life. And so just because you know somebody that gets that diagnosis doesn't mean that this is the end. It just took me a little bit of time. And as I would believe many other people to take a deep breath, to learn more, to figure out the right treatment so that you can accept as, you know, as a lot of people say in life is like you figure out what your new normal is. Mm-hmm. And that's what I ended up doing. And here I am eight years later and there are some ups and downs, but honestly, I have an amazing quality of life. And that's incredible. I think one of the things that really is not talked about enough is the quality of life while you're living with cancer, because this isn't a treatment that you are on for three months or six months right. and then you're done. You know, this right. is that you're on every single day. And so it's an important part that we have to talk about. But to back up just one thing, when, before you were diagnosed and before they found this sternal lesion, were you ever, or how did you think about your risk of recurrence? I know that a lot of people, you know, it's paralyzing for so many people, right? So kind of talk us through your mindset. Uh, so my mindset was every single time I go to my oncologist, I would sit in front of them and I'd be like, okay, 
So there's a good chance it won't come back, right? I mean, I wasn't asking for a statistic. I was like, there's a good chance. It's not going to come back, right? Like I might go the rest of my life. I'm one and done. And he's like, yeah, there is a great chance. Now, now I know better the statistics, but even so, the statistics are, at least they were, uh, about 30% of people that get early stage breast cancer, it will come back as metastatic disease. However, doing the math, 30% is still 30%. There's about 70% other people that it doesn't come back for. And so while I would say that as a child and even as a young adult, maybe early on in, um, in my cancer diagnosis, maybe I, I worried a little bit, but I'll tell you, and I know this might sound silly, but when I was first diagnosed, and by the way, I'm pretty lucky. I felt like I didn't have, I had a pretty easy childhood. Nothing like, I don't even think I broke a bone. I smashed a finger in a few places. Like, so I never had surgery or any, you know, huge bouts of pain. So this was, you know, we jumped right in, right. When I got the initial cancer diagnosis. And I guess I would have thought that I had, it would get cancer and I would worry and worry and be really dark and depressed. And early on, I remember crying so hard. I had a headache for two straight days. I remember wanting to stay in bed. This is very, very early on. Right. And listen, I think that is okay. However, then you have to make a decision and mind you, your decision could be, let's not make a decision, but that's a decision. So we, we have to make decisions. And many times as a cancer patient, you want to have hope. There is hope. There's tons of hope, but you have to do something about it. And so I found that when I was in this heavy bit of anguish, I, I wasn't doing a good job of moving one foot in front of the other. And so it was almost like I realized it was easier for me just to find joy in the little things, just to, you know, when people well-meaning people would come to me and, and we would have these conversations where we're heavy and crying. I'm like, oh, you know what? I love this person, but I don't think that this person's right for me right now. Or, you know, I joke around one of the chapters of my book, Happiness Through Hardship, is Google is not your doctor. Because if you go on Google, you're inevitably going to find somebody who's writing about their bad experience. And it's easy to vent, Right especially when you don't have other people to do that. And so I found that going to the internet wasn't very helpful. It just brought me down. And so I just had, call it this like mini aha moment where I was like, I'm going to just try and focus on the silver lining, try and find little things that make me happy. And mind you, you know what, when you're going through pain and when you're scared, it can be hard, but it also can be easy as watching. And now I'm going to embarrass myself that I like Days of Our Lives. It's a crazy, silly soap opera. And your grandparents, if you're listening right now, probably watch no one, I feel like, although it's still on, so someone's still watching. But it made me laugh. It made me realize that nobody was like gonna steal my baby and plant it in an alien. And, you know, like insert here any crazy weird thing that really just makes you laugh. And I found there was so much of that around me. I could watch Adam Sandler movies. I'm still a big fan of his. I would do like little workout videos that there was back in the time, Carmen Electra striptease. And by the way, I'm totally G-rated. Like, but it made me laugh, like her like pole dancing or something. And then you try and do it and you're like, oh my goodness, this is ridiculous. But it made me laugh. And so with my first diagnosis, I think I realized that like, it's tough and it's, it's okay to acknowledge that. And there's plenty of people in your social system, as well as your medical practitioners that can help guide you through the mental toll it can take, but you also can be good to yourself and try and surround yourself by things you like. And that was really helpful going into not just my first diagnosis, but into my second diagnosis where here at stage four and some of those same thoughts came back and even more intense because now I had a five-year-old and now I had this fear of what I thought was, oh my goodness, I'm going to die and I'm going to die right away. And I think all of us touched by cancer, whether we're the caregiver or the patient have that fear. But I learned that if I just tried to find a way to be present 
and find a way to get little bits of joy in my life, it made everything easier. And what was the treatment that you were started on when you were diagnosed with stage four? So they immediately put me into menopause because I was 40 and I was still getting my period. And they put me then, I was on tamoxifen, they put me on an aromatase inhibitor, which is uh, Femara letrozole right away. Now, because they weren't sure the magnitude, again, it wasn't coming up in my tumor markers at the time. We did switch what we were looking at, but they thought they weren't sure if this was the calm before the storm or if I had what's called oligometastases, you know, metastatic, in this case, breast cancer in a, in a handful of places. And so they told me they wanted to watch and wait. Now I was freaked out. I'm like, what? There's cancer in, in different parts of my body. You're going to watch and wait. And they said, listen, you have systemic treatment. You are having this medication that's changing. We're, we're getting rid of any hormones that might be left in you. We are taking care of you, but we want to watch and wait and see because our course of action is going to be different if this cancer is growing quickly than if it's growing slowly. So I would say those were the hardest four months. I remember crawling in my son's toddler bed and crying as he was sleeping, wondering like, am I going to be here in four or five months or am I going to be here in four or five decades? And that was definitely probably the most roller coaster of emotions because it was so raw and it was so new. After that, I had scans and they, it had stabilized. And so they said, again, let's watch and wait. We want to, we want to try a few more months. Maybe this hasn't been long enough. So we watched and wait another, I think three, four months. And at that point they did what's called SBRT. So stereotactical body radiation therapy. Now I know, you know what that's about, but for those who are listening, I like to think of it as it's like the laser. It's like, you're having a video game. That's like shooting at these spots on you to get rid of the, the, the cancer. And so they did that to two spots on my spine because after further screening, they did see a few spots that were suspicious as well as the sternum, which they had biopsied to tell that that was breast cancer. And then I continue. And in fact, Ibrance wasn't approved by the FDA. They did not have me on that until a year later when that chemo pill Ibrance was on the market. I then went on in of May, uh, I mean, I think it was 2015 because mm -hmm. I think it was approved by the FDA in February of 2015. And so ever since then, I have been on Ibrance for seven years. And is that seven years? Did I do my math right? Nope, six years. I've been on, no, what my doctor said is, okay, my mother who's a mathematician would not be happy with me. I've been on Ibrance six years. I've been on six and a half years. I've been in this new form of treatment for eight years. And so I, I stand here today or whoever's listening to tell all of you that there is so much hope in cancer. There is so much hope in breast cancer. And let me tell you, we've just talked about my story and my diagnosis. I have gone on to make some lifestyle changes that I believe have helped me. And so there's, there's hope in medicine and there, there's hope in in wellness and how we go about our day to day. And so I, at one time thought of it as a death sentence and, and, you know, yes, there are unfortunately many people that, that do die of stage four disease. So I don't want to minimize it at all. For me, my diagnosis was a wake up call for me to take better care of myself and to focus on a life with a different purpose, which is why I went from this, you know, and this is what worked for me. I had a corporate crazy career and I've changed it now to focusing on having a purpose. And, you know, I kind of laugh. I feel like you don't get breast cancer twice, stage four disease, live with it as long as I've lived and don't do anything with it, which is why I like to share my story with people like you on this podcast or share other stories about any type of hardship beyond cancer. But hopefully those success stories inspire people through my people through my podcast happiness mm -hmm. through hardship because i think we all need positive stories to help remind us that there's so much in life that's worth living 
I, I agree. And it's, it's so inspiring to hear you say that. Can you talk about some of the lifestyle changes that you made personally yes. and, and how you went about making them? And, you know, kind of what was the decision that went into that? Because, you know, you hear a lot of, I changed my life, but to actually do it, right? Right. Nitty gritty right. doing it is much harder right. than it's it really, you know, than it seems. Those moments that you sit up at night, especially those first few nights and then the coming weeks, because anybody who's had a cancer diagnosis knows that those first few weeks oftentimes are the hardest because you don't have all the information and you don't know your treatment path. So those first few weeks was stage four. I laugh. I'm not a control freak, but I wanted some control and you feel a bit out of control because you know, I'm not a doctor and I'm not going to pretend to do one, which is why, again, I try and keep myself off Google to try and learn about what I can do. Right? Like there's a delicate balance of that. You want to research to understand, to ask your doctors. And so I actually was lucky. I have a friend of mine who at the time lived in France, who was a dietitian, And so at three o'clock in the morning when I couldn't sleep, uh, she's my childhood like neighbor. I called her. I'm like, will you walk me through the internet or help me research who's thriving with cancer and what are they doing to be well? And so that's where I came about. Like she helped identify some people that help, like that I could research what they're doing. And so there's David Servan Schreiber who wrote Anti-Cancer Life. And now there's the, the follow-up book written by to an, an oncologist and his wife that is the anti-cancer lifestyle, the six facets of um, various ways to make lifestyle changes when you're touched by cancer. So kind of that, that brand helped me. And then there was Crazy Sexy Chris uh, who uh, had a different cancer. It wasn't breast cancer. And there was a woman in the UK that I got her book as well. So I started reading and then I would go back to my doctors and I would grill them on it. And my oncologist, he's a pharmaceutical scientist as well as uh, an oncologist. And he'd say to me, he's like, listen, I'm smart. I mean, he said it different than that, but he's like, nutrition is not my forte. So I'm going to send you to somebody who specializes in that, who's a doctor that has an oncology background. And so I looked at it. I have a communications background. I looked at it as kind of my journalistic endeavors. And so, you know, I joke around that it helped me feel like I had some control. So do I think that changing my eating to being a whole foods plant-based diet, I went vegan for four straight years. And by the way, it wasn't vegan packaged food. It was doing a ton of green juices, smoothies, like whole foods. It's wild how much better I felt, by the way, because I used to think I was health healthy by drinking Diet Dr. Pepper and eating baked lace, right? Like that was the fat-free cookies back in the day. But when you eat whole foods and your body changes from, you know, I would eat pizzas with my husband and maybe I wouldn't eat the crust because it was high in carb, but I would eat a bunch of cheese and all these other not healthy nutrient dense foods. And so when I made my changes, I really like people, we can make it really hard or we don't have to. Some of it's a mind game, like anything in life. Like I wasn't going to sit and have the battle in my head. I'm going to start tomorrow or I mean, you can have this, this, and maybe that. I just, I had one vice and take this for what it's worth, because I know that people like that alcohol is something that there's a lot written up about how it may cause various, you know, or, or promote carcinogens. For me, I made all these changes and my vice was going to be an organic red wine. So that was my, call it my one cheat. And by the way, I wasn't drinking it every night but I changed to a whole food plant-based diet. I went from being a weekend workout warrior to somebody that did something every day, mind you, 30 minutes of walking. There's all these nurses, nurses health studies out of Harvard and I'm sure other medical places, but those were the studies that I jumped into. And, you know, I'm not a medical person, but I'd try, if I was gonna read anything online, I was gonna try and read an abstract from a study 
to understand what this, you know, does this have any like credence? So I found that I felt I'm going through all these changes because they put me in menopause and I'm on new medication. And I felt my body felt pretty great. All those years of diet, Dr. Peppers, my body was just really bloated, right? So the mindfulness component was something that took a little bit more time for me, which is wild because again, so hard, but so easy. But that was something I started to, when I went to yoga, I would, I had gone to yoga before, but it was about going to hot yoga so I could burn 500 calories or I danced when I was a kid. And so when the person in front of me had the most beautiful, like high kicks or, or poses, I wanted to be that. But when I went back now at the stage four and I was reading about wellness was not just one area, it was about your whole well-being. I went to yoga to actually listen and learn how to breathe and how to come back to being present. Yes, my mind would wander because minds wander, but I learned how to pull myself back into the moment. And so I made all these changes and many of them, the eating was cold turkey. The exercise was, again, I'm starting, I'm starting today. I'm going to do what I can do in the day. The mindfulness took a bit more practice, but I will tell you that when I started doing it, I couldn't sleep and finally I'd fall asleep. And then in January of the four months, that four month period, I told you about when we didn't know whether I was, it was the calm before the storm with the cancer. I went into the pet machine. As you know, you're kind of going into this big tunnel. And if you're claustrophobic, it's a little bit overwhelming. And if you're not, it's still overwhelming because you're getting a scan. And I laid there and I closed my eyes and literally I thought to myself, let me pretend like I'm in my happy place. Closed my eyes and I could feel the sand in my feet. And I say it like this because that's why the woman said it on the guided imagery. And I was like, oh my goodness, I get it now. I have this tool that at the time felt like, oh, this is hokey. It's not going to work for me. But in the moment when I really needed it, it showed up for me. And I didn't even have to try that hard because I had been practicing. And that's what mindfulness and yoga is all about practicing because you'll just get better at better and finding the tools that will work for you at various times. That is amazing. I love hearing about all these changes and we know, and I, I think you made a very couple, I mean, some really good points. So one of the points that I really talk to a lot of people about is when you do change your diet, there's healthy vegan and then there's unhealthy vegan. And it's it's avoiding or limiting the processed foods because you can be a very unhealthy vegan. Correct. Um, And so I'm hearing that you're, it's more whole foods and plant-based than limiting the processed foods because, and you feel better, you know? And I think as you're going through this horrible, really, really hard thing, anything that you can do to feel better day to day is, is so important. Right. Well, and I, I will share with people, listen, you have to be true to yourself. There's some people that are okay with like me, like I want to do whatever I can and I want to do it right now. And my mindset's there. I'm going to, it's non-negotiable. I'm just going to eat this way. I'm just going to walk every day. And some people don't have the energy in them at the time. And that's okay too. I like to encourage people, which is why. So the other thing you would ask me, like, how did I keep going with it? I, I'm a storyteller. Like I'm sitting here talking. I feel like we could talk for hours upon hours upon hours. I've always been, I was that little girl when I was younger that would get on the phone and talk to my friends for hours. And so when I started making all these healthy changes, I would tell my friends about it. They'd call me like, Oh, we know you have stage four. We're so sorry. And I'd be like, listen, I just found the greatest juice bar a few towns over every day. I'm going and I'm doing this and this and this. And I'm going to learn how to make it myself. And by the way, I went to Bed Bath & Beyond and I bought a Vitamix and I bought a juicer and I know it was too much money, but I don't care because I just got cancer. And so I'm not being totally irresponsible because it was a blender, right? And they'd be like, wow. Like, and they were amazed that I could find like silly joy in all this. So my husband and I were talking about like, how do I, how do I make something out of this to share with other people and keep me accountable? which is why I started Pretty Wellness, which originally was just, I knew I was a a former marketer. I wanted to build a brand, right? But it started out being 
prettywellness.com or prettywellness on Instagram or Facebook, where I would talk and share stories about my journey taking small steps to wellness. And then, so whether it's cancer survivors or people going through cancer, seeing what I was doing, or it's people like I was when I was in corporate, I was a busy mom trying to decide if I should give organic foods to myself and my kid, but I just didn't have time to think through it. I wanted to be that best friend where I was sharing my stories and tips on how to make it easy. Because at the time, I actually had the time to totally change my lifestyle. Not everybody has that time. So I encourage people, like even if it's starting every morning and having warm water and lemon and two minutes to yourselves to kind of think about how you can find good in your day, that might help work you towards making all those changes that some people like me would do to better their health. And I think it, you're right. It is, again, some people dive right in and they go cold turkey and other times, yeah. it, you know, you do what you can when you can. So that's, you know, that's a lot of change for your family, right? You have a toddler, yeah. married. Um, sometimes, you know, patients tell me that they have a very hard time getting their families on board with yes. all of these changes because it's a big you know, cancer aside, anytime you try to change your lifestyle, it is going to impact people around. Yes. So yes. Were you met with any barriers or what advice do you have for people who, you know, may want to be making exercising more or drinking less or eating differently and their significant other is not necessarily on board or their kids aren't on board or, you know, whatever. Right. There's two questions there. I will say supports everything. If you don't have it from your significant other, then find somebody who you can get it from, whether that's looking in your town or your community or your friend of a friend of a friend and starting to connect a little bit more with them. That is a way that you can find support. And it doesn't have to be that heavy, like, oh my gosh, I got to find this person, this and that. It can be simple as, a friend of a friend, let's meet for a walk and you start talking and figure out what works for them, what works for you in terms of making these changes. And that's if you don't have it at home. I think what my husband was very supportive, he did not make the changes I made right away. And I will tell you, we had three separate meals. Now, side note, side story, my son has a severe peanut allergy and at the time was also allergic to some nuts and sesame. And so it's never been easy for us to figure out meals because if we wanted to do something quick and go to Whole Foods and get something there, my son probably can't have it because it's made in a facility with peanuts. So I say this to everybody out there knowing that especially in the beginning, I encourage you to figure out a way to make the time, even if it's three meals. Oh, I, I say that and I know you're probably like throwing tomatoes at me right now, right? But I would eat a bunch of vegetables and the vegetables would be the side for my husband and my son. Uh, I, I think it matters like price point too. If you're willing to make this a place where you'd spend money and it depends on where you live, like where I live on the East Coast, there's so many places that I can get healthy food and some places like you wouldn't think like Aldi is the cheap is a cheaper grocery store. And they have a ton of organic there and produce. I think that it's a mind shift. I don't always eat food that's amazingly delicious. And frankly, most of what I started eating did not taste good. The smoothies would be like vegetable smoothies. Now, as I've gone, like I'm almost eight years into doing this. I found like, you know what? I really am going to add an apple to my juice. It's just an apple. I know the sugar content's higher, but it's making me have green juice and I'm okay with it. But in the beginning, I wanted as I wanted just largely vegetables. So in my mind, I'm like, it doesn't have to taste great. I just want to nourish my body. My husband would never, that wasn't his philosophy. So I, I think it's, it's a bit of experimentation. What is it that you can find that you would like? And don't give up. Because I didn't discover tahini until a year later, where my son actually outgrew the sesame allergy. So I started using a lot more tahini. 
And I will make, I'll put buffalo sauce, which, all right, there's a high sodium in buffalo sauce, but um, on my riced cauliflower and then use tahini as almost like, you know, instead of blue cheese, like a little bit of cream. And if you like buffalo, it's delicious. Even my husband will eat that. So there are things that can work if you just keep trying. And if you have some hesitancy, I'll tell you now, my husband this year went vegetarian, first vegan, then vegetarian for New Year's. And so my second point is going to be about being a role model. And sometimes it blows. And it, like it, sometimes it really does. But I'll tell you, if you ask my son what his favorite food is, he's now 12, he's going to tell you cake. But I have to believe that all the years of me making smoothies for him or me always kind of preaching that every single meal, you should have a fruit or vegetable with it. I hope that that's the mantra he hears in his head. And the younger they are, oftentimes with him, it was just wasn't an option. And maybe I'm lucky at that because I know there's some kids that will only eat one thing. But, you know, you've got to figure out what works for your family and being a role model from the get go, I think is really powerful. So, you know, I love the idea of being a role model. Right. And, and, and keep trying, like we talk about this, you know, people say, well, my kids won't eat that, or my kids won't eat this. So you have to keep offering it to them. Right. And you have to like, almost sound like a broken record at times. Well, and, and I think that sometimes a kid or even an adult, they don't like the texture. They mm -hmm. say they don't like it, but you don't know. Half the time I might not even know, like, what is it that I don't like? I think I don't like it. Is it the taste? Is it the texture? Like do many of us just go through life eating so fast and going from place to place, you're not very mindful about it. And so that might be, if you're trying to add healthy habits to your family, especially when it comes around eating, being mindful, taking it slower and trying to evaluate first for yourself and then for your family, what is it that you don't like about it, right? If it's a texture, raw broccoli is different than sauteed broccoli. Yep. You know, kale salad is different than kale chips. And another little tip I'll give to people when they want to try eating differently is to go to a local vegan restaurant or a juice bar or just a, a cafe that's really focused on plant-based foods and try different things. Because I guarantee you that when I saw jackfruit and I tried it in Florida one time, I hated it. I thought it was disgusting. It was only because I then went to this vegan cafe that had buffalo jackfruit grilled cheese. Now, mind you, I'm not saying that's all that healthy. It's a bit of vegan comfort food, but it was fresh. But nonetheless, I wouldn't have thought to ever have jackfruit again. And there are plenty of recipes out there to take jackfruit, which is a fruit, and put it in the Instant Pot and put various like sauces in it, whether it's a barbecue or something else that uh, to make it taste wholesome. Now, again, you have to be careful how many sauces you add to things, right? Because just because you have one thing that's healthy, if you're dumping a ton of sugar on it, not so healthy, but there are all sorts of substitutes out there and things that might be just a few ingredients that can give you a really good taste. And so I learned that I liked it by trying it at a restaurant. When I started juicing, I think I said earlier, that I went to a different, a few different juice bars and I kept on trying their concoctions. And then I was like, okay, I know that I like juices with cucumbers and juices with beets. And then I would go. And when people think the other myth that's out there about healthy eating is that it's so expensive. Now, if you want to order from Daily Harvest, which by the way, I love Daily Harvest. They have harvest bowls and for like all sorts of things to put in your freezer, freezer from smoothies and desserts to like I said, harvest bowls, but they're a little pricier. And so if you don't have the money, that might not be the answer, but buying a ton of fruits and vegetables, not washed and not cut up are so much cheaper. You know, yes, I will sometimes go to Trader Joe's as opposed to stop and shop for Whole Foods because I know their cut up um, vegetables and fruits are a lot cheaper. And so you figure out your ways through it. But on the same note, it really only takes me three minutes to cut up a cantaloupe, you know, and maybe four or five minutes to cut up a pineapple. There are things that, and there are certain 
if you get really into it, like I do, you know, not everybody needs to be me. They can just follow me or, you know, reach out to me on Pretty Wellness is going and learning a little bit about what foods need to be organic or non-organic. You don't have to drop everything and eat everything organic. There are some fruits and vegetables out there, a lot of them which have thicker skins, but not necessarily all of them that are you know, a little bit cleaner that don't hold the chemicals as much as some of the other ones. So, you know, I used again, because I consider myself a student of my life, a student of the business and healthy living is my passion. I went and I schooled myself on the environmental working group and all the resources that they have available so that I can better understand at my fingertips, what might be okay to, to eat that's organic and not organic. And, you know, now eight years later, it, it, it comes to me because I've been doing it for so long. But in the beginning, that was where my journey started. And that's what I would chronicle on Pretty Wellness or on the social media. Well, and I think the other point to that is that, you know, plants and vegetables yeah. and beans and lentils, mm-hmm. all of that is still less expensive than a steak and then a piece of fish. Yes. Chicken. I mean, and so I think that a lot of the people say, and I get it, I think finance, you know, being able to afford healthy, right. well-grown food is, is challenging. Um, but there are resources available. Right. Um, you know, it does take a little bit of work in advance, but it's very doable. Well, and, and I, I think when you talk about resources, we're talking about like overarching healthy living is not just eating clean, which that's just a component. There's so many resources. And I think that are out there when people get diagnosed, you know, you, you've got to go to a million doctor's appointments. And I believe in getting at least second opinions. If nothing else, I know that you're stressed out. I know that maybe people love their doctor, but I found that in getting the second, even sometimes a third opinion, you're having another conversation about your case with somebody. So you become a little bit more wise about what's going on. And sometimes a question gets brought up or thrown out there that you never thought of before. And so I'm, I'm a huge proponent of that. And I, so I get, it's really hard to look into other resources out there, but there's so much, I'm sure that the, the hospital and the, that, that you work for has a list of resources. There are organizations out there, whether it's like the Gilda's club or the cancer cares that have their own resources or going to people like me that on my website, I continue to post resources as well as, you know, that was what the book to me wanted to be an author. Like I was the girl that always knew I was going to be doing the TV work, but the, but I felt so compelled because that's where people go when they want resources outside of their doctor, they go to the book. And so I wanted to include lists of different resources I went through because sometimes uh, you're just not, you're not thinking, call it outside the box of other, other ways that you could get money or other ways that you could get discounts on things, or even just know a group of people to connect with that can help you something on your cancer journey. Well, and it's all about community, right? So it's about gathering all these people not just like in a relationship, one person is not going to give you everything that you need. Yes. Your oncologist is not going to give you everything that you need. Um, right. and I think it's all about kind of branching out and figuring out who are the people that are going to help me, you know, either support me or give me resources or answer my questions. And the more people that you have on your side, on your team, the honestly, yeah. the better that it is. I mean, there's, you know, we don't practice medicine in a silo. And so your cancer care should be, you know, as broad as possible. Yeah. I love, I love that. And I think through my years now of, you know, not everything's roses and I, I, I get that. I have learned how to play to my team's strength. And what do I mean by that? My husband is my rock. He is the best thing that ever happened to me besides my son. And he has been through me supportive through so much. He's also very passive. I, he's, I, I want to say that he, when it comes to being a patient advocate, he doesn't have a loud voice. He can have a presence, but he doesn't have a loud voice. And there was one time where I was in the hospital and my friend Jackie met me there. He was, I think with our son doing something else. So she was there and he came to relieve her. And she was like, we got to do this. We got to do this. Let me go talk to the doctor. Let me make sure she's getting attention. Let me this, that. 
And my husband was like, whoa, like she left him, Karen, you got to slow her down. You got to settle her down. And I was like, actually, Kev, I think I act, I think I really need that. And there was another instance where something similar happened. My eyes, I have a strong voice usually. And so between the two of us in our relationship, I am, I'm a strong patient advocate for myself, but at the time I really wasn't feeling well and couldn't do it. And so now I know like the person that, that is the best for your case may not always be that person that you think to bring first. And so, and that is a decision like, and it can change, you know, like, and, and that's okay. It doesn't always have to be the same person, but I encourage people to just like take a moment and think about what do you think you need and who could that person, what role can they play? It's so true. I've actually never thought of it like that, but you know, when people come for consultations, right? They most often, not always, but most often will bring their spouse or their significant other. And occasionally it's a parent or a child, depending on the age and once in a while, a friend, but you know, I always, I never ask, you know, I guess it's a weird question to ask, but you always wonder why did you bring the person that you brought right. with you? Right. Um, and pre COVID, you can bring as many people as you want. So yeah. it's very different. Now you get one person, right? So you have to put kind of all your right, eggs right. in this one basket, so to speak. And, and I'll tell you, my friend Jackie, she, I had to have a visit with a radiation oncologist uh, um, shortly ago. And she sat there and she takes notes on her phone. She texts me them like ding, ding, ding. She'll send me like, I'm kind of laughing because you know, whatever happened to the old school notebook, which I, that's how I take notes still, but she's sending me these texts, but I cut and paste all those texts. I put it in a note in my note section of my phone. And I basically have our whole conversation that way I could share it with my husband. Who's going to want to know those details, but Jackie is very inquisitive. And so she'll start asking this and she'll start asking that as she's typing. And it's, it's really turned out like, even though I want my husband there to give me hugs and, and to be there to hear it all, this is what works for us. And I, and, and maybe this is what works for other people or maybe not, but I think what you and I are saying is to take a moment to think about it. And I think also to not be afraid to be vocal about what you need, not in a negative way, but I right. think it's okay to say to your spouse or whoever, you know, to be honest about maybe they're not the best person to come with you. And that's hard. Yeah. But right. Um, right, right, right. So before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't touch on or that you want to share a little bit more about? Oh, there's always so much I want to share. And, I, you know, I spoke about I really believe in having hope, because there's always hope. And how I find hope might be different than how the next person finds hope. I believe that the medical community is so working so hard to find new treatments. And I'm not saying that I hope, like, I hope people don't get this disease, but I know they will. And I know I have it. And so I want to believe that we're going to find new treatments so that metastatic, whatever breast cancer in my case can be a chronic disease and everybody's got something. And so if you do know somebody that gets stage four disease, don't treat it like a, a life sentence because there are ways that they can, you know, we use the word a lot recently, pivot, but they can find a way to live the life they want to live because it is a choice. And there are definitely obstacles when it comes to cancer. But if you know how you find love, if you know how you find joy, especially if it's in the little things, then hopefully you're surrounded by that. And to me, that is a good quality of life. That's fantastic. Um, and I'll just say that, you know, when you were diagnosed, Ibrance wasn't around, right? And right. you're living proof of new drugs, new treatment, right. amazing advances. And we now it's hard to imagine a time where Ibrance or the other medications in that class weren't available, but we've lived it. And that gives me hope right? That's continual hope. When I had my first surgery, the sentinel node biopsy was like a few years new. And that was, you know, for those that, you know, don't know what that is, 
that's of basically surgically removing one, two, or a handful of lymph nodes underneath the arm where the breast cancer, like near, it was my right breast. So I have full range of motion since they only took a few lymph nodes, but women before my time may not because years ago that didn't exist. So there is, there is so much hope and there is a way to find a little bit of joy during this journey of cancer and beyond. So I encourage people, you know, to keep in touch with me and to keep in touch with you and, and And to know that we'll find you online. So I am very active on Instagram. So at pretty wellness or via, I'm also on other social media or to listen to podcasts. I'm happiness through hardship, the podcast, and it's, you know, cancer stories and beyond. There's stories of people that have gone through any type of hardship, whether it's career hardship, family hardship, other chronic diseases, and how they found a little bit of joy during their journey and sharing their experience and also some suggestions on how, uh, you know, how to find happiness. And that is where probably with the same places where your podcasts are on and their favorite podcast platform. That's wonderful. I think just by listening to other people's stories and experiences, we can learn so much, but also feel like we're not alone. Right. You know, that there's someone else out there um, going through something. Karen, thank you. This was wonderful. Well, thank you. This was great talking to you. And thank you so much in the medical community for everything that you guys do, because it has helped me and countless people around the world be able to live and hopefully thrive with cancer. Love it. Wow. That was incredible. Hearing about Karen's experiences, the choices that she's made, the way that she has chosen to live her life with so much intention is wonderful. And I think it can inspire all of us to really think about how we approach our days, the choices that we make, the intentions that we set for ourselves. I hope you found this episode helpful. You can find Karen at Pretty Wellness on Instagram or go listen to her podcast, Happiness Through Hardship, or order her book, Happiness Through Hardship, same title. You can find me at Dr. Toplinski on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And if you enjoyed this episode or other episodes of the podcast, it would be honored if you could leave a reading and review over an Apple podcast as that is the best way to help me grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. Have a wonderful week and I will see all of you soon. 